you've got to ask yourself, do we have enough women in our technology team? Do we have enough of them in senior tech roles? And if not, why not? Welcome to episode 18 in the third season of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. On today's episode, we're sharing our conversation with Danny Atias, Chief Digital and Information Officer at Anthony Nolan. Before we do that, though, we've got some news stories that we want to talk about. Paul, there were a couple of things that caught your eye, weren't there? Yeah. So we all like a little rant or rantette every so often. And this seemed to cause outrage on Twitter last week now. But this was the story about uh, West Midlands trains sending, I think, all their staff. I think it was across the board to all staff an email that was basically saying that they were getting, getting, I think, a £2,000 bonus. And it turns out that this was following some training they'd done on fishing with all of their employees. And this was actually a test. It was a fishing test to all employees saying, click on the link. It's £2,000 bonus this year. Thank you for all your hard work and all that sort of stuff. And it turned out to be a, a trick that they were sort of playing and, and testing their staff with. And I guess, you know, I felt when I saw the commentary from uh, from everyone I'm connected to on Twitter was, this is disgusting. This is really, really bad. This is an awful use of internal communications. It's, um, and I think, preying on a, an employee group that could have people for which, for whom £2,000 is life-changing, or at least year-changing. You know, there's an awful lot riding on, on that. But also, I think there was a bit coming through of, well, you know, they really, really have put their money where their mouth is in a very, very nasty and dangerous way. But this is exactly the type of awful uh, attack that we're seeing more and more and more of across all of our channels at the moment. So, yeah, that was the first thing I wanted to raise. And I don't know what you thought, Zoe. Oh, it's a horrible way to test your cyber security resilience, isn't it? Because on the one hand, fine, they've probably got a very clear picture now of, of how good that resilience is. On the other hand, it's it's quite emotionally manipulative, isn't it, really, compared to a lot of the other uh, tests that I've, I've heard. It's not like, oh, transfer this money from this bank account to another or something that's perhaps not quite as you know that's going to to feel so raw and visceral at a time when the staff on this train service must have been through a really really difficult year personally and professionally so it just feels very tone deaf and I know on the podcast the other week we talk about base camp there have been quite a few other stories recently where it feels like some employers are doing these very very tone deaf very sort of strange communications to the rest of the organization and employees are beginning to hold them to account it's this growth of employee activism and i'm really excited about it yeah yeah no we're definitely seeing that in um in all of these return to work conversations as well it's well hold on a minute i've quite like uh, i quite like the working from home but yes i thought that was pretty awful Anyway, then uh, another thing that I noticed just today was that finally Twitter seemed to be moving towards uh, launching a paid service called uh, Twitter Blue, which is a bit of an unfortunate name for it, I think, (laughs) given where they find themselves with uh, some of the awful abuse that's going on there. I don't think they need to turn their service any more blue. But I think it's interesting. I've always thought that I would be 
happy i don't know but i would love to see twitter go back to something that i think it's been missing since probably around 2015 something like that but the the golden age of twitter was was a wonderful place where you could connect meet people new people share ideas and have really quite interesting conversations and it seems to have moved away i don't know whether the changes are going to to help towards that but i think they were talking about things like being able to undo tweets being able to bookmark tweets in a different way so you can do it by topic and by uh, organization or whatever it might be but i think the move towards a paid model is interesting i guess the question is would you pay no i don't think i would to be honest it, it feels like they're scrabbling around a bit in order to find some income streams in in my view and i wonder whether it's come a, a little bit late because obviously with all the things that we've seen over the last year that we've actually discussed on the podcast, so things like Chrissy Teigen leaving mm-hmm. Twitter and then the social media boycott from Premier League footballers that you were talking about the other week. It feels like a weird moment to be trying to monetize something. Yeah, it will be interesting to see whether anything gets picked up there. But I think also yeah, there's there's much more choice now around the platforms that we engage in. Yes, Twitter's got a massive role i think it'll be hard to see it disappearing but it's not unlikely that a challenger might come along where the experience that twitter should be offering is more freely available but let's see where that gets us Uh, another interesting article that we should share in the share notes was something that i noticed today a couple of articles actually today on a very similar subject but this one from the uh, the turing institute there's a piece of research that they've done about emojis and so emojis are even more like language than previously thought and there's some interesting stuff in here about the evolution of language and communication um the full report um the full report is available on the turing website and we can can link through to it but they were talking about some examples they've looked at 1.7 billion tweets between 2012 and 2018 and they've looked at how the use of emojis have changed has changed over that time so one example they used was that there was a period between 2012 and i think 2015 where the frog emoji it was a temporary change in 2014 actually the frog emoji became associated with right-wing memes and donald trump so there's some interesting stuff in there and i don't know i i, I use them quite liberally now I, for, for a while i didn't touch them but I do use them quite liberally now and i do find they are very much a shortcut to conversation sometimes i think that's right and i think they add a little bit of extra nuance i am a bit of an emoji fan there was a point probably about five or six years ago when people were beginning to use emoji more where i used to just put random emoji text to my husband just to confuse him (laughs) so once i put an emoji of um a bowl of noodles and he was going what does that mean does does that mean something i was saying well don't you know what it means (laughs) followed up with like a a wave emoji and just other just random things I, i i found um yeah, so yeah, a great weapon for confusing people. Yeah, and also for um, uh, word association and things like that. I know there was um, there was an interesting discussion on Rachel Miller's. Uh, I don't know whether I was on a podcast. I think she was tweeting about it uh, almost a year ago now, where she was talking about emojis. And I think the conversation was: Is it ever appropriate to use an aubergine emoji in a corporate presentation? No, <laughs> is the short answer to that. But a peach. Oh no, I'm uh, no, no. I mean, some of the emojis, some there are some emojis I just don't even dare go near because I know they have a very, very strong 
subtext and yeah I just I, I just stay away I just stay away I think my most used one is the coffee cup and that's absolutely fine that's and shrug. Lo- lots about and, you and shrug as well I don't know and finally you wanted to talk about charity digital code well, I was talking about the Charity Digital uh, Skills Report, but you're right, though, I do only work on things which have Charity Digital in, in, in the title. Yes. Yeah, so basically what we are doing this year, again, for those of you who have very kindly got involved in the Charity Digital Skills Report before, is once again, mapping trends across the sector. But this year, I think is going to be particularly exciting because we will see the impact of digital change across the sector during the pandemic. So I really encourage everyone who's listening if you haven't already I would love to hear how your charity or non-profits use of digital has changed over the last year and what that means for your plans for the future and we're encouraging people as well to take the survey perhaps with a colleague or to do it within your team because what we've heard from charities who've done it so far is that it's a really good conversation starter about what's gone well over the last year what could be improved and also where they go from here so we'll pop the link in the show notes and we would love to hear from you that's great I think there were some questions I saw um, recently published that were getting people to think about well how's the pandemic really shifted thinking about strategy and they were based around sitting down with your team and talking it over I think so much of this has been done in isolation and we've heard you know from our leaders uh through the technology but when you actually get back to the workplace i think about lessons learned how you move forwards but also being very very careful to go back and think about the stuff that might have been left behind that you do need to recover because i think that's that's important too I think that's absolutely right. And one of my worries uh, for the sector, and I think outside the sector at the moment, is that as society reopens, and we know there's a lot of things that reopened yesterday, people are going to be under a lot of pressure to deliver, especially given the positive predictions that Bank of England are making about the economy. And I think it's really important that everyone just takes a moment to reflect, to think about all the many, many things, the many digital adaptations and innovations that have taken place during this time. And as you say, talk about, well, what are we going to stop? What are we going to start? What are we going to continue? Uh, And what are we going to change? And unless you have that conversation as a team, I don't see how you can get to a place where you're moving forward with purpose to where you go next. So now for our interview with Danny. We are very, very excited to welcome to the podcast today, Danny Atias, listed as the most transformational and disruptive CIO by CIO 100. Danny is currently the Chief Digital and Information Officer, Anthony Nolan, the UK's leading provider of stem cells for life saving transplantation. Danny also holds digital advisory roles for several other organisations, including Plan International, the World's Marrow Donor Association, and until recently, he was a trustee at Charity IT Leaders. Danny was previously global CIO for the Grassroots Group, delivering employee, customer and channel partner engagement solutions, as well as international event management. He has also held roles in the John Lewis Partnership and Waitrose. Danny is also a mentor for women in technology and a supporter of Kajigo, a platform established to empower girls and women into tech careers. Danny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. 
So by way of personal introduction, I'd just like to add a couple of things, if that's okay. Of course. So um, as you say, my name's Danny. My preferred pronouns are he and him. Uh, and my surname, as you pronounce so perfectly there, is Atias. Uh, although sometimes I catch myself saying Atias because I'm a bit lazy and I anglicise it. But it's never Atias. And uh, I've just looked up actually and found out that the word means a gift or present of God from Arabic. Because uh, we're not on screen and it's audio only, I can describe myself a little bit more fully uh, for your listeners. I'm a, a white heterosexual male with a mix of European and North African ancestry. My parents uh, were born in Egypt and Tunisia. I'm largely a-religious, although I do identify as Jewish from a, a race and culture perspective. Uh, so I know that's quite an introduction, so apologies for that. But I think it's important that we present ourselves openly in order to be able to have open conversations. And it's the first time I've tried such an open introduction, and um, I'll see how it goes. Thank you, Danny. We really appreciate you being here today and making the time, but also just kicking off the, the conversation like that. And as someone who's a woman of colour, um, I absolutely think that having those conversations, however difficult, however imperfect, is a really good way to begin that conversation about inclusion. And I know that's one of the reasons that we're here today, because later we'll be talking about how you can really build a diverse technology team. So I think we were going to begin by talking about different options for how you lead digital transformation. Now, digital transformation has obviously been such a huge buzzword in the charity sector and beyond over the last few years, and perhaps even more so during the pandemic. And there are so many different ways to cut the cake, as we all know, and there's so many different ways to, to lead it. And obviously it's very much a marathon rather than a sprint. So do you have any thoughts about, well, first of all, who shouldn't be leading digital transformation yeah um I, I like your actually i like your marathon and sprint analogy there's this there's a terminology that we use internally sometimes where you know, we're running a huge digital transformation program and we're talking about the program which is going to take two years long to get us race ready so getting us to the point where we can start the race, but be fully equipped to have done our training, have, have learned our lessons, have got the right equipment. In terms of who shouldn't be leading a transformation, well, COVID has been leading digital transformation for most organisations, although I don't think we would have predicted that one just a year or so ago. I think you're... I don't want to disfavor uh, people in this role, but your traditional IT manager, unless they're going on a journey of growth and of discovery, if they're using the same knowledge and the same tools that got them to the point to be a great IT manager and IT being kind of predominantly an infrastructure type, then I don't think they would be the best person to necessarily lead it unless, as I say, they, they go through a, a lot of learning and, and reshaping. And I'm, I'm really not a fan of IT people reporting into finance people. So I would certainly be very nervous about finance leaders, whether or not they have a responsibility for technology leading digital transformation. So those, those, are, those are the two I would go with for not leading your digital transformation. Tell us more about the finance side of, of things. So you mentioned there yeah. that that doesn't work so well in terms of leading digital transformation. What do you think the main challenge is with that? It's all about priorities and whichever way you look at it, your finance leader is going to have their eye on the money. 
that you know, they have to have their eye on the money. And as much, and, and that's not to say that they can't be a critical part of your digital transformation, absolutely. But the bottom line is if their focus is on cost benefit, um, profit loss, you know, what's my payback? It's just not a good way to start your, your transformation program. I, I think it's essential that organizations have someone, ultimately it's a responsibility of the entire board that that's clear and I can expand on that, but someone's got to lead it. Someone's got to take the reins and really help make sure that the board are exercising the right behaviors and so on. A level of understanding of technology is definitely very useful, but it's just got to be much more than that. It's got to be about culture and process and, and behavior and experimentation and, and valuing data and so much more. What's your take on the role of the chief digital officer, particularly in a, an organization where the board doesn't have one at the moment, for example? So is a first instinct of many CEOs or organizations that are looking at digital transformation to go out and find someone to come in and lead it? Or should they be looking from within? Uh, and where do you see the chief digital officer or head of digital role sitting? It depends on your competencies, capabilities as an organization. I've always been very skeptical of a chief digital officer from a purely marketing background coming in and then sitting alongside the chief information officer on a board. That That's confusing, quite frankly. And I think that suggests that it's not really clear about who's responsible for what, and there can tend to be a, a focus very much just on that marketing customer perspective, which is great and absolutely essential, but you need to be able to deliver product and you need to be able to analyze data alongside it. So I'm a chief digital and information officer, so I've grown, and you know, I'm that person I just described at the beginning, incidentally. I've worked in infrastructure for the majority of my career. I only started to really lead application development four or five years ago, but I've immersed myself in this field very heavily. In fact, I remember meeting Zoe about four years ago. And the first thing I probably said to her is, I don't know what digital is. Can you teach me? <laughs> um, and I was saying that for about three years. It took me a long time to figure it out, but I wasn't prepared to take the lead on it until I started to understand what it is. So I think people can come from different backgrounds, but they've got to be prepared to be open-minded and not work in exactly the same way that they always have. So if they're coming from that pure IT, you're not going to get digital transformation by doing it the same way that you always have done. And the same applies to digital officer if they've got a marketing background. So should they come from within the organization? I mean, if you've got the capability within the organization, then yeah, absolutely. Get some external help to point you in the right direction. Why not? You don't have to always go outside to get it. You touched on something there that I think we'd be remiss not to sort of jump on straight away. But one of the things that Zoe and I worked on a project before the end of last year, and one of the questions we asked, and I think it was in our very first meeting, was for the people around the table to define digital. For someone that sort of admittedly thought, well, I don't really know or understand what it is four years ago, how would you define it today? And a subset of that question is, do you still use digital as a word internally to define the work that you're doing, if that makes sense? Okay, great, great question. And having said, I spent three years not knowing what digital was, I have to now, <laughs> you know, put, my, put me on the spot. So I've boiled the word digital in terms of the way it's used and the way it's interpreted and the way it's referenced into three broad categories. Layer one is infrastructure is email and, and mobile devices and Wi-Fi and mobility and tablets. A lot of digital projects start with 
implementing Google Workplace or Office 365, for example. So say we've got this great digital program. So what are you doing? Well, that stuff. So I think that I wouldn't call that digital. I would call that the evolution of infrastructure, but that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I think the second layer is your internal applications and also your internal capability. So you're developing applications and you're rolling those out and you're using similar skill sets. And I suppose you're digitizing manual processes. You're moving from paper forms to electronic forms for your HR and and so on. And, And that's digital, you know, that's your digital workplace and that's okay as well. You know, when I use digital, I'm really referring to customer experience really changing the way they engage. So yes, you could loosely use it to talk about digitization and and paper forms going online, but it's about different ways of of engaging with people. And you just need to look at the marketplace to say, what's different? What have they tried to do digitally that's really different? A, A simple example that I use is just even when you go and pay for your fuel up your car and you pay for the fuel and there's a QR code and you can have an app and it knows where you are and it's context aware and and so on. You don't have to go in and and pay with cash or or with contactless. And that's a a nice, simple way of of just adding digital experience. But it's always about the customer. It has to start with the customer and and therefore it has to be data-driven as well. Do you think we will have chief digital officers still in 10 years' time? Because you know how we all see articles about that on e-consultancy or McKinsey or wherever, and we hear about the, how the role of CDOs is, is, is going to grow. Everyone's going to be hiring one. And then suddenly you read an article the next day saying, actually, you know, this is a role that's going to come and, and, and go. What's your take on that issue, Danny? So without any offence to my editorial friends in, in the industry, I think the only people talking about whether the CDO is a new CIO or whether there'll be a new CDOs in 10 years time or CIO journey to CIO is basically the magazines and the articles and the consultancies <laughs> and no one else really cares. I, so I've read, I've read a lot of these articles and I just think, yeah, people still need to lead that focus of the business. I would hope in 10 years time for the majority of organizations that they have got into a new way of working, that they're very customer centric, they're very focused on their product and their journeys, they're using data to make decisions, but there will be the next set of challenges. And those challenges will largely be digital driven and data challenges. So, I mean, the CIO has only just made it to the board and not so in many cases. I don't think there'll be coming off the board or roles disappearing in the future. That's a really helpful prediction. Thank you. What do you think on that issue, Paul? I think the same. I think any organisation that that thinks it's going to fix a a digital gap by going out and hiring a chief digital officer to come in and fix a gap or fill a hole is probably a few steps away from feeling quite a lot of pain. I don't think that's that's quite the way to do things. And I think usually there is a, a sort of a shared responsibility across the piece that only grows with time. I think it's important to have someone to guide it. And I certainly think that, you know, an organisation that I worked for in, in the past, we had a, a clear CTO who developed himself into a CIO over a period of about two to three years, I I guess, really sort of modernized the approach, modernized the the infrastructure, made it all about infrastructure, actually. And I know for a fact, some of the stuff that they did around the Olympics, when everyone was told that London was going to be a a hellhole and everyone should get out of London, that's when they made the infrastructure changes. And therefore, when COVID hit, for example, 
very, very well placed. And, and that was from a, a sort of a CTO making sure the checks and balances were done and, and that nothing would fall over, developing that role into a, in, into more of a, you know, information-based digital role. But I think there's shared responsibility across piece, not sort of making it all by committee, but I think in, in 10 years' time, certainly, if, if everyone at the table, including the CEO, hasn't got some uh, responsibility for digital in their particular area of the business, or at least some responsibility or indicative responsibility in their goals and objectives, then I think that's going to be problematic so i think i think you probably right. won't have a table to sit around <laughs> <laughs> well there is that there is that but you know has this been sort of relied on you know i think in in certain organizations has the the person in charge of hr necessarily always taken lead on on the technology um, that they want to invest in and has that always connected to it no so i think the big change will be a connected leadership team that understands the role of digital within their particular area of responsibility and how that all ties together ultimately though you probably do need one person that takes responsibility for communicating that out across the business and, and what's happening but i think that's probably the bit that will die away and that we'll just expect our organizations and our leadership to be able to tell that story i think at the moment it's useful to have somebody that can sort of translate what's going on uh, half the time and I, I guess danny that's probably a a role that you play one of communication across the the business this is what we're doing this is why we're doing it yeah it is it's it's about it's almost sometimes it's five years of reputation repetition but we had as an organization we had an all-staff webinar uh, last week and each member of the exec took turns five minutes to just really talk about the next 12 to 18 months i was last up on that and what was just so encouraging i missed the rehearsal so i wasn't involved in any of the the, the planning what was so encouraging is every single member of the exec starting with the ceo talked about data Data is the crown jewels, data is king, digital, customer, every single one of them. You wouldn't have found that two years ago, three years ago, without a doubt. So that that's a kind of shift. And I think you need that senior leadership buy-in to really understand not just why, you know, I want to be digital. That's great. But can we go a layer deeper? And it's understanding that we need to make decisions based on data, not just on gut, not just on instinct and avoid all of those biases. Also, you then need that culture across the organization understands what failing fast means. It's really, we talk about celebrating failure, but what does it actually mean? And it means taking very small actions that will give you some insight and it doesn't matter whether that action succeeds or fails either way you will learn from that experience not this two-year-long multi-million pound project has just failed let's have a party that's not a good outcome and it's just helping helping everyone around and everyone around the organization understand what that means so I think actually there are, there are probably three key things. One of them is that senior leadership understanding. Everyone's got to be around that table understanding it. Then you've got the organization understanding it, kind of digital literacy and understanding ways of working uh, and failure and, and agile. And then the third bit, which is why the CIO, CTO, CDO still needs a job, because this stuff's really complex to actually build and deliver at the front, the simpler it looks at the front end, the probably the more complex it is at the back end. And that core competency isn't going to go away. And do you think COVID 
uh, we've, we've certainly heard a lot on this podcast, but do you think COVID has accelerated the rate at which organisations will bear failure? To make that question better, it's really, I think, COVID probably given us that reason to, to try and that failure off the back of trying is acceptable because of the conditions. So I think has COVID created the conditions for us to, to fail better, I guess? Yeah. We, six months into the pandemic, uh, as an exec, we sat around and we said, okay, what behaviour changes have we seen as a result of this pandemic? And then we said, which of those behaviours do we want to retain post-pandemic? And I sat silent throughout and almost without exception, 80% of the things that came up were agile principles in effect. They were about I mentioned a thousand times, you had data-based decision-making, but also experimentation about rapid change, about just try it out and see what happens. You know, we need to pivot, we need to shift. And some things we'll have talked about for years and just not done anything about. And suddenly we're doing it in three days, two days, and it's delivering. And other things we tried and it didn't work and that's okay as well. So yeah, I think without a doubt, it's, it's helped bring to light the awareness that you can you can make decisions quickly, you can try things out quickly, and you can learn from them whether they succeed or fail. Can I ask about the role of the CEO in in all of this? So what really strikes me is that you've obviously made some some really great progress with digital, and it's really exciting to hear about the the momentum and the energy that's behind that. And there must be lots of charities and indeed other organisations right now where they're lucky enough to have a really talented someone who's leading their their digital transformation, whether that's a a CDO um, or if you're in a smaller organisation, a head of digital. Or, or, or whatever as we said there's lots of different options for how you lead it but when you've got that person in place that talented person like Anthony Nolan are really lucky to have what does that then mean for the CEO role how does their role and and their you know attitudes and, and behaviors as a CEO how, how does that need to shift a bit to make them the most of and to enable the change that needs to happen yeah the CEO needs to bring in a great digital leader but then be part of that journey. So not sit back and go, great, I've bought digital, that'll get delivered now. The digital leader has then got to work to coach, educate and enable that transformation in the CEO's eyes, as well as their peers and across the organization. Uh, I mean, we when, when I started the CEO saying, we need to be more digital, uh, which I've said a few times, and I, but I, it took me a few years to figure out what that meant. And actually part of her vision we're just about to start delivering on that but it's taken five years worth of groundwork and foundation work and and a lot of delivery to be able to do that very customer facing for us it's it's business to business as it were the charity to to the nhs for stem cell transplantation so it had that clear vision but it's about i suppose a, a really good example is if you use the kind of traditional mindset of a kind of waterfall project delivery upfront, you want to know what's the, what's the product going to look like? How long is it going to take to deliver? How much is it going to cost? How many people do you need? And I would spend year after year just saying, I can't answer any of those questions because I don't know. I don't know how complex it is. I don't know. Until we start, we're not going to know the answers to these questions. Mm. And I'd ask the question, well, why, why do we even need to know? I mean, there is a, obviously cost benefit, um, you know, business case and element, but, but fundamentally, why do we really need to know the plan? 
because it's a bit arbitrary if I say it's one year, two years or three years. And it was about accountability. Uh, it was about saying, well, so then we know whether you're actually delivering at the right rate. And actually, uh, what I position to, to the board and the, and the trustees is let's hold people accountable for what they're actually doing not what they said they were going to do or what happened next or what got reprioritized. So instead of saying, what are you going to deliver and then hold them accountable a year or two years down the line, let's say, what have you actually delivered in the last three months? What have we done? How have we shifted? How have we moved forwards? And then look at that and go, is that good? Is that value for money? Is that heading in the right direction? And if the answer to all of those is yes, then simply it's a case of keep going in that direction. If the answer is no, then let's break it down and understand what's not, what's not delivering, what's not meeting expectations. But working in a kind of retrospective view and working in a smaller timescale, kind of sprint-wise, sprint means you're actually having an influence on outcomes and supporting a level of momentum rather than just accepting something will take two years and waiting two years until you see what gets delivered. It's a very good point. And I think, um, I think a lot of organisations could learn a lot from, from that, um, particularly all those organisations that sort of stick to a five. We have a five-year plan and the five-year plan ends in 2020, in which case we will then do a new five-year plan. And imagine if you had a five-year plan that ended in 2020, Everything got thrown out with the bathwater then. Yes. So we're focusing on the, the last three months or where you've got to in the last quarter with a destination in mind, but a sort of a journey to get to that destination that might take a left turn, might take a right turn, might be straight um, plain sailing straight ahead, I think is probably a good approach. What do you and think and I, don't get me wrong, there is nothing wrong with having a five-year strategy or a 10-year strategy. No. That's perfectly fine. But uh, mixing up the five-year plan with the five-year strategy are two very different things. Definitely. And because of those changes that you mentioned, Danny, um, has that meant the way you kind of plan and you monitor performance as an organization has changed it sounds like it's shifted from the perhaps traditional ways of doing that i think the main shift has been towards trust so it engenders an element of trust so it's saying okay in some cases some people might go actually i don't really understand <laughs> what's being proposed here but i trust that we're doing the right thing based on the outcomes over the last few periods. You know, it has reduced the cost of running our infrastructure, or it has increased the market share, or it has increased the amount of fundraising. So I trust that we're going in the right direction. So that there's an element of that. Now, I'm not saying run your business on trust completely, but it's, a, it's an important, it's important component of it. And in terms of how we do things, I think the way you do things changes, not just in the state of the world and pandemic, but it changes with your relative maturity at any given point in time. So I think if you come into an organization and say, right, this is how you run a digital team and you start recruiting into the right roles and you put the right metrics in place and so on, it's not going to work. And I, I know I inherited a team like that, which had all the right principles laid out, the right map had been drawn, but, but the people didn't know how to read the map or they just weren't ready for that journey. So I, I've changed the shape of my team dramatically probably every year in the last five years. And just as you, sometimes you look at it and you go, it's perfect. It's just, it's 
oh, I wouldn't I wouldn't touch a thing. And three months later, you're looking at it going, right, I, we need to change this. We need to recruit. And, and, and that journey of transformation is not one of fear and change for the team or for the organization. It's, it's a journey that they all go on together. So I'm working with my team at the moment to get them to redefine what it means to be product focused rather than technology focused historically, for example. And they're the ones to define it. They're the ones to define their own roles and what they want to see. And then we socialize that across the whole organization. Wow, that sounds so exciting. Um, and it takes us to the, the next thing I know we were going to talk about, which was how you build a diverse team in tech. So tell us about your journey with that. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to just in the middle slot in one other thing, which is very briefly mention what my organization, Anti Nolan, does. Uh, by my, I mean the organization that I work for, not that I, I own or run. So, Anti Nolan are a national stem cell register, as you mentioned at the introduction. And what we do is we, we recruit people, adults who are unrelated, uh, to join a stem cell register, provide us with their DNA. And then through that, working in partnership with 100 different registers all over the world, we try and find matches for people in need of a life-saving transplant. So that, that's what we do. We do lots of other things that all complement that, including running DNA laboratories and uh, cell therapy businesses and patient support and uh, research and so on. But I just thought it would be good to kind of understand the context in which we're speaking about. So in terms of diverse team, um, I think it's, it's got to start with the person building the team. It's got to start with that individual. It's got to be team driven, absolutely, but there's got to be that vision, there's got to be that strategy. And that person needs to educate themselves first and foremost. So you don't build a diverse team to tick some boxes. You do it because you've really understood the benefits of cognitive diversity, of socioeconomic diversity, of gender and race diversity within the team and the benefits that it gives. And, and that's, that's something that's just proven time and time and time again. So it's understanding the need for that within, within your organization and what benefit it's going to be. That's your starting point. You then reach out to wonderful resources and organizations such as the uh, Tech Talent Charter, uh, which we, we, we were signatories of uh, about a year ago. And they're great because they are collecting lots of data. They're helping identify the benchmarks and understand the trends, um, particularly in technology. And, and then you've got some baselines. You, you've got something to work with and something to work against. And it really makes you stop and think about your objectives. So then you need to just be involved in the conversation. So get involved in external conversations, run internal conversations to really understand the benefits and the differences that it makes to, to be able to create and sustain uh, and recruit a diverse team. Ultimately, I mean, the way I like to think about it is I've got to be a better ally. So I have plenty of privilege. I'm in a developed country. Uh, I'm white. I'm male. I'm in a senior leadership position. And I'm not shy of that privilege, but I'm, I acknowledge that privilege. And I want to use that privilege uh, for the best outcomes for, for everybody. So wherever I can. And anyone in that position that's talking about building a team has some privilege because ultimately they're in they're in the position where they can recruit people and give people opportunities that they might not have otherwise had so that's really important and then and then also it's about being very open to feedback 
listening, reflecting, looking for trends that might help you identify your own unconscious biases, really creating safe spaces with people so you can help, they can help you identify your blind spots as well. So I think that's a, that's a kind of quick intro. Well, it's not quick, apologies. That's a kind of intro for the way you would approach something like this. The things that we've specifically done is that we have used a variety of different ways. So we have worked with organizations that use apprenticeship schemes. So for example, so training people up from within the business or even within the existing team to increase their skills and move them into, into more significant positions or introduce them to the world of technology. We've worked with organizations who have retrained people from other professions to become technologies, technologists, sorry, which is brilliant. We've had five people so far, and they've come from a, a really wonderfully range, you know, wide range of different backgrounds. Um, one, one was an international DJ, which is, which is pretty cool. He, he kept getting spotted when we'd go out on, on team days. Uh, people would go, isn't that that world, world famous international DJ? Well, actually, he's one of our developers who's been retrained, uh, and that's been really nice. And then we're very open in our selection. So if we're using an agency, we will um, mandate that there is diversity in the shortlist. So they don't just sell up, send us uh, 10 CVs for an information security manager that are all white males, for example. There's got to be diversity at the start point. Otherwise, there's nowhere else to go. So those are just a few examples, and, and there are probably a few others as well, but I don't want to hog all the airtime, uh, Zoe. That's so helpful. Thank you. That's a really comprehensive, practical guide for how to do it, because my feeling from talking to, to lots of organisations across the sector is that it's very good to see this uh, appetite to really tackle this this sector and societal challenge but so many people seem to be wondering well how do I get started and what happens if I get it wrong uh, so that's such a helpful step-by-step -step process for people to follow. I suppose you know the, I, I say have conversations I probably elaborate have difficult conversations yeah they're, they're, they're not going to be easy if you take the easiest route the path of least resistance you're going to end up with the same teams that you've always had you've got to ask yourself do we have enough women in our technology team for example do we have enough of them in senior tech roles and if not why not are we attracting people from from different ethnic backgrounds if not why not are are the people that we're recruiting staying or are they leaving and why is that? And you, you're having some really difficult conversations and, and challenging yourselves is just absolutely crucial. We got to a point, uh, we just had a resignation actually, so the numbers aren't quite right, but we got to a point where we had more female developers in the team than male developers. And I think the industry standard is less than 20%. So really happy with that. And now we've got to do, go and do some more recruitment. We want to we want to ensure that we keep that level of at least gender diversity, but but more so within the team. That's so interesting. Thank you. Also I'm dying to know who this world famous international DJ is that you oh, employed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, we'll we'll put a link uh, <laughs> to the, is it Pete the, Tong? So yeah no it's say... Stay, everything's gone a bit peaked on. Yeah, I think you've got to be into that kind of music to know to know who he is. <laughs> I, none of our team had heard of him, unfortunately, but the people are into that music scene. Santa had amazing. Well, we're intrigued, aren't we, Paul? 
We are. We are. I think every development team ought to have an internationally renowned <laughs> DJ, or at least every um, every senior management team would be better off with um, <laughs> yeah. with input from a, an internationally renowned musician. It would be quite good. Brilliant. Well, um, that's been fascinating, Danny. Paul, is there anything else you want to ask? No, because the only question I'd, I'd sort of written down another question that we hadn't got to, but that was because um, I was looking at uh, an interview that you'd done. I think it was in. Um... Was it Wired? Was it? <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> it, was computer, it was Computer Weekly. Oh, all right. That uh, one. Actually, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. It, well, that, that they just they've got their SEO sorted, so that comes above your Wired front <laughs> yeah. page. I'm afraid. So um, yeah. in the search details, but um, no, that was just uh, around. I think and I think it was just refreshing for me to to read because I think one of the one of the ways I'm sort of assessing and looking at my own business is that you know as a small and Zoe will maybe resonate with Zoe but as a as a smaller organization in a field um, such as digital transformation where you know a lot of the, the big consultancy firms have a lot of, of space with bigger organizations and I'm sure you know a lot of them come knocking on on, on your door every so often to say oh we can help you we can help you do that seem to want to fling people out to the sort of the, the third horizon of, of change right right over here in the distance where the robots are taking over and AI is a big fixture and all that sort of stuff and you just said something in there about making sure that you have digital planning in place that matches the appetite and ambition of the charity and I just thought that was really just a nice refreshing look at it to say, do you know what? Yes, some of this stuff can be quite scary if you look at it. Digital transformation doesn't necessarily need need to mean robots taking our jobs and, and, and things like that, but it can mean uh, supporting a business strategy at its natural pace. And you also said about, you know, well, it's already taken us five years to get to this point. A lot of organisations will try to do things much quicker than that and just end up falling on their backsides i imagine so uh, it wasn't really a question it was just uh, a comment <laughs> on, on that that approach there's certainly there's always a fear when you start automating processes and, and putting in digital solutions uh, of people thinking well i'm going to lose my job what's going to happen to my job and, and actually more often than not what we want is to free those people up from the mundane so that they can provide a much higher level of service to their customer and be much more engaged so that's the kind of the, the key the key component and yeah I, I don't get i don't get too excited about blockchain and, and ai and and stuff in the day-to-day -day right now until you've got your data organized until you've got your platforms organized and then you can say where are the opportunities for these other types of technology you've got to start with the problem not with the technology uh, otherwise you're just shoehorning in a chatbot because you wanted to shoehorn in a chatbot somewhere I've actually got one final small, really quick question, if it's okay to... Absolutely. Danny. Is it um, about the DJ again? <laughs> no, no, we'll, we'll work that out. We'll, we'll look on Google and we'll find out who, who that is. Um, but no, I'm intrigued to know. I'm intrigued to know, obviously. Now, my question was, was actually about you, Danny, and I love the way you introduced yourself at the start and you talked about your parents having been born in Egypt and Tunisia. And I have to say that struck a bit of a, a chord with me as a, a woman of colour because I feel really fortunate to have come from a different background because I think it's made me look at digital differently. And is that something that you feel as well? I think it's, it's, it's quite interesting. I was born in the UK. I, mm. I went to a private 
boys school uh, and so in one hand I'm quite British and then on the other hand I grew up at home talking Hebrew as well as English and food was different and your family relationships are different and so on so it, you get this kind of mix of different cultures and, and influences I also grew up in a uh, a very multi-ethnic school as well so it wasn't until I went to Loughborough which was which was pretty white that I had a slightly different perspective on things I, I remember standing at a at checkout number one at a supermarket and looking across and every single cashier was white and I'd never seen that before in my life uh, because I, I came from a very multi-ethnic upbringing all my friends and so on I've always embraced diversity and difference. And, and I think that makes you think about different people in different cultures at, at all times, rather than just thinking about things in a very uniform way. So I think it helps a little, certainly. That's so interesting, because I've got this theory that there are a lot of really good leaders out there who are code switchers. And what you've described there about growing up and having a different experience at home and a different experience at school is very much to me about code switching, because I think it makes you really good at sensing different situations and adapting and not being scared of change. So thank you. That was fascinating. I suppose one other thing I would add is also the same way there was ethnic diversity. You know, women have always played a very strong, they've always been very strong role models in my life. So I suddenly enter the workplace and people are talking about women in the workplace and women CEOs. And I, I kind of start by scratching my head going, why are we even having this conversation? And I understand why we're having the conversation because there is a problem, but I can't understand how do we get into this state in the first place? Because the way I grew up didn't have that message. There wasn't this kind of man, woman, even though I went to a boys school, it didn't, it didn't matter. It, it, yeah, I just, I just found it very strange and you, you need to adapt to it and you need to understand. I suppose it goes back to what I was saying about being a better ally. So where you see these problems, calling them out and just going, these, these things are not acceptable. Yeah, they've never been acceptable, but they're definitely not acceptable now and calling them out. Even those subtle, subtle things about, about a man taking credit for a woman's idea in that meeting because she said it very quietly and then he repeated it and got the credit for it or speaking over women in the meeting. Those are the type of things to look out for and being aware if you're doing it yourself, which invariably I'm sure I've done without even realizing it. Uh, those are the kind of things to look out for. And I, I suppose your background and your, your culture helps inform you and, and helps you understand those things a bit better. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Danny. We've loved talking to you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. That was a great episode, great conversation with Danny. Um, Zoe, anything that, you'd like, that you took away from the conversation? Oh, wow. There was so much there. I, I love the way Danny unpacked who should really be leading digital transformation? I would love more people to, to hear about the pros and cons of those different options he mentioned, because it's going to be different for every, every organisation. And then I, I loved his kind of step-by-step -step guide to how you build a diverse team in tech. It was incredibly practical. So I hope everyone finds that as useful as I did. Yeah, and I think being brave about the you know, the use of the term digital, how long should you be using it for? What's the change you're actually trying to make? I think there was some really, really insightful stuff in there, and I hope people uh, really enjoyed the episode as much as we did. And go back and get in touch with Danny and ask him all your questions because he's very, very open to sharing what they're doing, um, Anthony Nolan.
just in in terms of wrapping up because i've been um obsessed by a couple of things this week and i just you know, really want to, to share them and i know we do a sort of a regular slot on what we're listening to reading to reading and uh watching um so on the listening front um i i like you i, I picked up and i got completely obsessed by the bicep album um and now listen to it almost every day it's really good to work to Oh, yeah, uh, I've, I've, I've figured it's very easy to work to. And also I've I've recognised in the past 48 hours that old spiritualised albums, particularly Pure Phase, is a really good working album because it's got some really sort of droney instrumental bits in there that are really, really good. One that I have found that is really good to listen to, but is the most excited, and this is why I want to talk about it, the most excited I've been by guitar music in a long, long time, is the Squid album, Bright Green Field. Brand new band, a couple of years old, a few years old from from Brighton and they are really really exciting lots of screaming on one of their most popular tracks which wasn't um, wasn't going down too well in this house other than with me but when everyone's out I will put that up very very loud and bop, bop around the room to it because it was really really good the St Vincent album uh, Daddy's Home as well was out last week and is a really really good one I think you might enjoy that one uh, Zoe I've, it's... I've heard that's really good I've heard some of it on Six Music actually uh, so I'll try and listen to the whole thing that sounds really great it's very good and on the watch front and I'm not sure you'll be able to get this because it's uh, I think it's on Sky Atlantic but me and my wife are completely obsessed by Mayor of East town at the moment which is the new kate winslet drama um which is absolutely phenomenal and i urge you to go and have a look at some of the reviews and particularly the reviews of kate winslet in that show because it's just such a powerhouse performance there's sometimes when you're watching it thinking that's that can't be kate winslet it's just um uh, incredible the weight of the world borne on those shoulders and just that sort of a grumpy female detective who just bears the weight of the world on her her shoulders and just it's just brilliant just the way that she acts it is is fantastic and I'd love to uh, hear any other fans of Kate Winslow and Mayor of Easttown that are out there and willing to uh, jump on Twitter and have a conversation with me about it two more episodes left and it's really 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 good really good anyway nice one i've heard that is great actually I've, I've not seen oh we don't have sky atlantic thinking about it but um maybe i'll be able to see it sometime in the future i'm sure you will i'm sure you will i think it's destined to be a bit of a classic actually well thank you all to listening to episode 18 of season three we'll be back next week we hope with another episode as usual please do send us your feedback we'd love to hear about anything that you feel you'll do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series you can share your plans ideas or questions with us on twitter we're at at starts at the top one and you can email us at starts at the top podcast at gmail.com and if you're listening to us on a platform that allows you to leave a review um it'd be great if you could and something I picked up from another podcast recently, if you do leave a review, what Zoe and I will do is we will go through and identify people that have um, read reviews. And, you know, there might be a prize in a future episode for somebody that leaves us a lovely review. Prizes only go to people that leave five stars reviews, though. But thank you very much to, for listening and we'll speak to you soon. Speak to you soon. Thanks for listening. 